I'm Sherry Sylvester, and this is Ninth and Congress, a podcast sponsored by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Last month, hundreds of professors from the University of Texas crowded into the Texas Capitol to testify against new legislation to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on college campuses. My guest today, Dr. Daniel Bonavac, stood alone as the only UT professor who testified in support of that bill, which passed and has been signed by the governor. Dr. Bonavac has called DEI programs the Campus Thought Police. He's going to tell us today about what it's like teaching on a Texas campus that has become overwhelmingly woke. Dr. Bonavac has been at the University of Texas for 30 years. 43 years. 43 years, was trying to be kind there. (laughs) But are you a native Texan? Where are you from? No, I was born in Pittsburgh. And in fact, when I accepted the job here, had never been closer to Texas than Steubenville, Ohio. (laughs) So I had no idea what wonderful things were uh, in store for me. Well, tell me about that path. How did you get from Pittsburgh to Texas? Um, Well, I was... I was born in Pittsburgh and lived there during my childhood. And then my parents moved to Virginia and then to Connecticut, um, where I went to high school and where I met my wife. Mm -hmm. And then I went to college in Philadelphia, grad school at the University of Pittsburgh. So I was back to within a mile of where I was born and uh, very close to where I lived as a child. And then the interviews were conducted in those days, all at a central location. So basically my year was in New York City. So all the people who had jobs in philosophy and all the people who were looking for jobs in philosophy met in New York and interviewed there. And a few days later, I got a call from UT offering me the job. Normally, the pattern would be they fly you in, you give a talk, et cetera. None of that happened. They just offered me the job after the interview. And so um, my next, the next day, I went to Notre Dame and was uh, being essentially on campus interviewed there. Uh, and the day I arrived, it was 12 degrees and windy. The chairman met me as I came out of the hotel and said, I'm glad it's such a beautiful day for your visit. And I immediately thought, okay, Texas, here I come. (laughs) I uh, had other schools that were interested in me, and I didn't even bother going to those campuses. I looked and said, Wisconsin is north of Notre Dame, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yep, Nope, I'm going to Texas. So it was an easy decision in a way. Well, so philosophy. You say all the philosophy interviews were conducted there. So was there a crowd of people? How did you get into that field? It's, uh, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a niche market. It is. Oh, very definitely. Very definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think some of it was that um, when I was young, my father was going to college at night while he was working during the day um, on the GI Bill. And... He was, he was himself a Catholic who had converted to becoming a Protestant, but was attending a Catholic university and had these required theology courses. Mm-hmm. So he would talk about that sometimes at the dinner table. And so from a very young age, I got interested in questions of free will and predestination and a variety of other topics of this kind. And um, we would occasionally talk about that. I heard him debate his uh, older brother, who was a, an avowed atheist. And so there was a lot of philosophical and theological discussion going on, even though his brother was a computer engineer and my dad was studying to be an accountant. 
Um, neither one specialized in this. But then as I was in school, I found that I was always interested in the underlying philosophical questions. My favorite subject was actually math, and I loved physics. Um, and I took lots of math and physics in college, but it was really always philosophy that I gravitated toward. And finally, I realized, well, look, I, I should just be a philosophy major. That's what I keep wanting to inquire more about. And so I did that and then went to grad school in philosophy, mostly because years before I had decided I wanted to teach. What I wanted to teach was unclear. I thought it would probably be math, actually. But when I majored in philosophy, I thought, well, I still want to do that. I want to teach. And I've had some great teachers who inspired me. So that's why I went to graduate school in philosophy. And uh, at the time, Pitt, Harvard, and Princeton were essentially tied for number one. And so I went to Pitt and, um, and loved it there. It was a wonderful, wonderful program. And so, um, and it was also nice because I got to be around relatives of mine and my grandparents and so on in the years leading up to their deaths. And, and so it felt like it was grounding me personally as well as allowing me to explore philosophy, which I loved. And it was a great department. It was a wonderful place to study. So when you got to Texas, what was waiting for you here? Was there a big philosophy department, a small department? What did they want you to do and how did that work? Texas had one of the largest departments in the country. Um, and, <laughs> and when I got here, it, was, it had a reputation for being one of the nastiest departments in the country. Uh, people were constantly at each other's throats. There were people who specialized in history of philosophy, and they more or less stayed out of these battles. But there were some analytic philosophers. There were continental philosophers. There were people who did philosophy in the American tradition, pragmatists. And those three groups were just constantly fighting. And I remember job talks where somebody would come and be giving us talk to the department and faculty members would start yelling at each other. Someone would ask a question and before the poor candidate could answer, some other faculty member would say, that's a stupid question. They would start shouting at each other. And so it was a wild place. Um, but a few people left over the years, and uh, one of the things I tried to do when I became chair uh, back in the 90s was to try to calm things down and get people to feel a sense of unity um, and, and stop fighting with each other in this way. And it required me to do certain things that people weren't happy about at the time. I wasn't super popular. But it did a lot to defuse these conflicts. And so now I think we have the reputation for being one of the most harmonious and collegial departments in the country. We don't fight. In fact, we hardly ever meet. And when we do, it's more like, your idea is brilliant, but you know, yours is really good too, and <laughs> all this kind of thing. Um, we're almost boringly harmonious. But it's, it's so much better than when I first arrived. And I think it's partly that... Um, these traditional fights I, have either become less intense in the profession or it really was just a few people who were generating a lot of the conflict. And once they left or retired, um, the conflict stopped. So your first book, you start putting out books, you've written nine books. Do they, is there a theme or have they progressed in your thinking? Um, well, they have progressed a lot and shifted um, in a way that I actually anticipated they would when I was young, but um, most other people probably couldn't have anticipated. 
I always thought the center of philosophy was really ethics, um, how we should live our lives, what it is to live a good life. But I didn't start there, and I didn't want to start there. I thought I need to be well-grounded in other areas. So actually, my dissertation was on the philosophy of mathematics. And that's really what my first book was about, question of, is mathematics true? And if it is true, how is that possible? How could we know mathematical truths since they seem to talk about this realm of entities, sets, numbers, functions, and so on that we don't encounter in experience? And so it was very abstract. And indeed, the title of the book when it came out was Reduction in the Abstract Sciences, where mathematics, logic, and so on were the, the main topics. And for about 10 or, or more years here, mostly I just taught logic courses or philosophy of mathematics. Um, but then my interests started shifting and broadening. I, I wanted them to. I had always planned to study more of metaphysics first and then eventually branch into ethics. Um, and in the 90s, my path changed a little bit because a student in a Plan 2 course once asked me, why are all the readings in this course from Western philosophers? Why aren't we studying anything outside of Western philosophy? And my answer was basically, well, that's all I've ever studied. That's all I know. <laughs> and it was really common back in those days for philosophers to think of their subject as starting with Socrates or a few pre-Socratic philosophers going through Greece and Western Europe and then to the United States and to other English-speaking countries. And that was philosophy. So you studied this pattern basically from Socrates up through, well, maybe some of the medievals, but then Descartes and Hume and Kant and some contemporary figures. And by then I realized, look, there's a huge amount of philosophy that I don't know from outside that tradition. So I took about a year when my first daughter was born and was spending much of it at home on a grant. And I decided I'm going to, in addition to working on the grant, just start reading Chinese philosophy and Indian philosophy and so on. And so I did that for about a year and talked to a colleague of mine, Steve Phillips, who specialized in Indian philosophy. And we decided to do a book, and it turned into a series of books together, um, which were edited, but with a large contribution from us in explaining this material, um, where we included a lot of philosophy from outside the Western tradition. In fact, the first in this series was called Beyond the Western Tradition. And our idea was to make some of these texts accessible to people so that people realized philosophy is this global phenomenon. It's not something that emerged just in ancient Greece. It was also alive in ancient India, ancient China, and in a variety of other parts of the world. And there are traditions in those parts of the world that now are increasingly being integrated with Western philosophy so that the divisions seem, at least our goal was, that they would become kind of artificial and historical artifacts, but that people would talk across these boundaries. And I do think that's happening um, more slowly than we anticipated. I think we thought our books were going to transform things quickly, and um, they did in our teaching and a few other people's, but um, it's taken decades, not years, to make people realize there, there's a lot more. And this is really a global kind of thing we're, we're dealing with. People are asking the same questions. What is there? How do I know? What should I do? Those are universal human questions. They're not just Western questions. Well, was this an indication? What's happening on campuses now in terms of we feel like there's a war on the West, 
and then we're going to talk a, a lot about DEI today. Was that question a kind of a precursor of what was going to come in terms of where, why aren't we studying philosophy that's not out of the Western tra tradition? Uh, and now there's total rejection of all of that by many. Right. Oh, yes. I think it is part of the same phenomenon because around the same time in the early 90s, um, there was, uh, in general, an attempt to be multicultural and to push for the study of other cultures, and often in a way that really did run down Western thought in general and Western civilization. And part of the reason we did the books was not only to open people's eyes to the possibilities, but also to say, look, people are thinking about this in the wrong way. Um, these are not hostile traditions to the West. In fact, people are asking the same questions. And many times they come up with similar answers. Sometimes they don't. In fact, sometimes it's really striking that ideas that have emerged in the West only quite recently were there in ancient India or ancient China. And, and so part of why we did the books was to say, hey, look, this isn't a question of opposition. You don't have to reject the West in order to think there are important things outside it. In fact, people are asking the same questions and dealing with the same problems and often coming up with similar solutions. One of the things that we noticed is that a lot of early efforts here to be multicultural, quote unquote, amounted to having Marxist writers from Nicaragua or Africa <laughs> in the curriculum. And, and that's absurd. First of all, their ideas are derived from Western civilization, namely Marx. But secondly, that's not at all reflective of the tradition of philosophy in, say, Latin America or Africa or China or India. And so we thought, this is absurd. People are getting, are trying to give the impression that, oh, all of these people from other cultures have been proto-Marxists and proto-postmodernists all the way along. And it's just ridiculous. That's not at all what those traditions are about. So that was about the 90s. Yes. It was coming in. And did, did you see that as a precursor when you testified before the Texas House a month or so ago? You were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you said it functions as a campus thought police. Is yes. this how you saw this come in? Is there was definitely an anti-free speech element even back in the 90s. And there were some bloody conflicts over this. Um, at, at UT and elsewhere, um, as people tried to take various courses that were um, traditionally non-ideological and make them high, highly ideological. And so I was involved in some of those conflicts back then about our English 306, our English composition course. And it eventually led to a sort of division of that department into a division of rhetoric and composition separated from the English department. But it was happening nationally. So uh, what happened in each class? So what happened in rhetoric and composition that was separate from English? Well, basically, the original course was teaching students how to write. Uh -huh. And it was done in a kind of traditional way. Here's the structure of a good sentence. Here's the structure of a good paragraph and of a good essay and so on. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly people wanted to turn it into a course on Marxism. Um, here are a bunch of radical writings, and they wanted people to write about that. Um, and the writing mechanics were getting suppressed. But it was a very specific thing. There were certain specific courses. Most of us, in doing what we did, didn't really feel much effect of this. Um, 
But now it's much more general in a couple of ways. First of all, it's infusing the entire curriculum. It's in general, hey, we're trying to make people feel included, and that means shutting down <laughs> speech that might upset anyone. And that really wasn't part of the framework in the 1990s. But the other part is it's not just an attack on Western civilization anymore. It's an attack on reason. The whole idea is that, oh, rational argument is less important than people's lived experiences and their emotional reactions. And that really tears down not just Western thought, it tears down thought. Um, there is no sense in Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy or any other tradition I'm familiar with that says, oh, yes, just go with your emotions and reject reason and so on. There are always a few skeptical figures in each tradition who say things like that, but it's never been dominant in any tradition. And the idea that now people are really attacking reason itself and denouncing things like mathematics or science as racist, that's, that's way beyond anything anyone said back in the 90s. So now it's really targeted much more broadly. Everybody is, is you know, in the crosshairs really here. And, and I not only think that's new, it's something that people have been realizing only recently. I think much of the campus, people in the sciences, people in engineering or business, for a long time thought, well, those crazy liberal arts people may do this or may do that, but it has nothing to do with us. And I think they're finding out now, no, it has a lot to do with you because this isn't just some abstract philosophical dispute and it's not just, hey, some people in liberal arts are doing some pretty wild things. They really mean to tear down reason itself. And that's why I see it as so threatening to the foundation of a university and to civilization in general. Yeah, John Saylor from the National Association of Scholars, when he wrote a report about the development of DEI at the University of Texas, he used the phrase that they had created a cathedral of bureaucracy. <laughs> and uh, I, I later found uh, the statistic that after George Floyd's murder in 2020, the number of DEI officers increased 60% in this, in this last two or three years. And so it really has infused. And I'm, I'm wondering what difference that has made. I get what you're trying to teach, but what does that mean to discussions in your classroom when you walk in? What are the students saying? What are they thinking? Right. Uh, a huge amount of this affects them even before they get to the university. This is happening K through 12 as well. And, and so I can't blame by any means the things I see just on the University of Texas or just on sure. DEI or anything. And people I talk to from other campuses re report the same kind of experience. Already in 2016, I was on Tucker Carlson's Carlson's show, talking about the fact that students just clam up when controversial issues come up in class. Um, they're afraid. And they're afraid not so much of the university bureaucracy or of faculty members, though that's part of it. They're afraid of each other. They're afraid to say anything that would make them unpopular or a target of attacks on Facebook or anything of this kind. And so there is a real fear among the students to not step out of line. And for a while, after that, it became even more intense because we had, and many campuses had, an, a DEI-type office. 
that was sending around emails frequently saying, have you observed bias? You don't have to have been the victim of bias, but if you see anything that you could interpret as bias, let us know. File a bias incident report form, and we will dispatch a bias incident response team that will investigate this. And they were getting hundreds of complaints. Um, and demanding more staff because of all these complaints. But they were soliciting this and saying, essentially, has anything upset you or anyone you know? Report it. <laughs> and you can imagine that adolescents piled in away from home uh, in a college campus setting are going to find lots of things to be upset about. And indeed, they were. Um, so it's it was kind of an amazing transformation, and it made everybody very, very nervous, including faculty members. I started noticing teaching is not nearly as fun as it used to be, partly because you can't have a sense of humor anymore. It's related to the fact that comics won't appear on college campuses anymore. You can't laugh at anything. And so people are always walking on eggshells. Now, that has relaxed a little bit as a result of a lawsuit. We've dropped our bias incident response teams. We don't get those emails anymore. And also, some of us, I think, have just realized, look, this is ridiculous. I'm going to make jokes. I'm going to say things. And if somebody's offended by it, well, too bad. And, and so I've noticed that sometimes I, I joke in class. And you can see this visible relief on students' faces, like, oh, in this class, we're allowed to relax. <laughs> we're actually allowed to laugh at something or whatever. And and it is striking because they come in nervous. They come in worried that everybody's looking at them and everybody's, you know, concerned about what they might say. And it is now possible, I think, to get them to relax some. <laughs> but but it's still difficult. It still has transformed the, the feeling on campus. It is not what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And... And it's depressing to realize that. Um, they used to have much more fun in class. And I used to have more fun in class mm -hmm. than it's possible to have now. And, and I don't think anybody in those days was offended by anything. Um, you have to be trained to recognize these microaggressions because nobody would have ever thought that the word mother or father, for example, was offensive to anyone. Mm -hmm. And now that's on the list of things you're not supposed to say. It's ridiculous. But... Um, once you make it clear, look, we're, we're not obeying those crazy rules in this class. We're going to say things in normal ways. I'm not talking about anything that any normal person would consider offensive to anyone. And, uh, and so it is possible to counteract it somewhat. But all it takes is one person in a class of 300, say, who gets upset about something to transform the atmosphere back. Do you see any shift? I think in the there's been kind of a tipping point in the country, and certainly in Texas. We this last session we passed an anti DEI law. We passed tenure, uh, tenure reforms. We passed gender modification. We're taking drag shows out of elementary school. You know, radical moves like that. That and and we have the total support of 70% of Texans to do all of this. Is any of that sentiment showing up on campus among the students? I, I want to talk a little bit about the professors and their fighting back, but is that showing up among students? Um, it, well, I can't really answer the question about students just because most of these things were finally passed after everybody left campus for the summer, so right, yeah. it's hard to judge. 
But among faculty, I know it's caused huge alarm among certain activist faculty members who suddenly are afraid, how are we going to do what we do? And I, I've been parties to some conversations before I testified and before they realized what uh -huh. side I was on right. about, well, you know, we're going to have to figure out how we accomplish these goals if it's actually prohibited. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to. And, and essentially, they were talking about how to evade the law. Um, now, some of them in fact, most of these fears were unfounded. The law is very clear. It doesn't affect people's teaching. It doesn't affect people's research. And so to the extent that they were saying, you know, my course is going to become illegal, that, that was always ridiculous. But um, I have no doubt that discussions are underway among administrators about how to do what they've been trying to do in other forms, renaming positions or... Um, what I was really afraid of as these legislative discussions were going on was a proposal to say, well, you can't get rid of any people. You can get rid of the office, but the people have to be reassigned elsewhere. And I thought, oh, great. That's like a doctor telling you, um, I've got good news and bad news. The, the tumor is malignant, but we're, the good news is we're not going to actually you know, remove it. We're just going to shatter it and send those cells all over the body. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not going to help. Uh, that is likely to make the problem worse. And they, they know that that's a strategy. I, I was reading this article in inside the Chronicle of Higher Education, and it was saying that to evade Republican lawmakers, that they would dismantle the high-profile big administrative offices. And I know during the debate, the fact that the, the uh, DEI administrators at the big six colleges are all paid enormous salaries and have an enormous offices and rather go down into the colleges. And, and so they would be less visible. Of course, they're already in the colleges too, but... Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there is a worry that the response to this legislation, even though I very much support it, I think it's uh, an important step in the right direction, is going to lead people to just do what they're doing in a more covert way. And it will be harder to detect and harder to get rid of. The, the thing that's really disturbing about this is that what people say they're doing and what they're really doing are so radically different. They say this is just outreach to previously marginalized communities. It's ways of welcoming students and tutoring them and so on. Those tutoring programs existed long before there was a DEI office. And it's not mostly of what, what they, in fact, do. It's not outreach either. That's handled mostly in the admissions office and through alumni networks and so on. And so what this really is is a way of trying to shape hiring decisions and admissions decisions and then all sorts of curriculum decisions toward their particular vision uh, of social justice, which, as they define it, means equal representations of groups. And since you don't really find that normally in any society unless it's artificially engineered, it has to be artificially engineered. And so it's a way of saying, look, you can't do faculty searches, for example, the way you've done them before. You now have to have one of our representatives on the committee who will oversee what you're doing and make sure you're not being unfair to any marginalized candidates. Not that anybody would be. In fact, for my entire career, people have been leaning heavily in the other direction, saying we'd really like to have more applicants from women and from minorities and so forth. And so 
the idea that these faculty search committees, which are overwhelmingly populated by people on the left, since that's who's on university faculties for the most part, that they are racist and sexist and so on, that's all, that it's just an absurd thought in the first place. They're not. But then these people come on and they have a very political idea. Wait, this person is doing, let me look to my own past, philosophy of mathematics? Well, nobody cares about that. That doesn't advance any cause of social justice. And so there are very particular kinds of people they are looking for and they're trying to champion. And it's something that has nothing to do with academic quality. It's not necessarily incompatible with it, but usually in practice it is. And to the extent that they are interested in people who have their philosophical view, which really is a rejection of objective truth and objective knowledge of rationality, then it really is incompatible with good academic work. You can't reject rationality and produce excellent intellectual products, either in the classroom or in writing. And so there's a real problem there. Or, or, or merit, yeah. Uh, Heather McDonald, in her new book, When uh, Race Trump, Trumps Merit, she makes the statement that uh, there would be a problem if we had applicants, either job applicants or student applicants, who were claiming to be white who weren't. And, of course, it's just the opposite. Just the, the opposite, yes. Is the case. And uh, not, not any instances of people coming forward and saying they were not hired because of race, their sexual identity or, or, or whatever. So right. what, what happens in a field like yours? I know, I mean, well, let's talk about mathematics a little bit because she talks about that too. Um, one, of the, one of your colleagues who also testified before the Senate committee was the, a DEI officer for the School of Engineering. And of course, the number of African Americans in engineering doesn't nearly mirror the 14 or 15 percent of African Americans in the culture. And that would seem to reflect the fact that in our public schools, we're not doing a very good job of getting our African American kids ready to perform in math. That's right. And But for some reason, we think we're going to fix that once they get to college. I, I'm not sure how that works. How How do you deal with merit, achievement, students that are not ready but being pushed into? It's a huge problem. Um, one thing that my university is doing right um, is recruiting very successfully in high schools that have large numbers of minority students. So a disproportionate number of my very best students over the last few years have been black or Hispanic. Um, and. And that's wonderful. I mean, one is now a faculty member at the University of North Carolina. One is in graduate school at Oxford. So these are very talented people, and I'm really happy that we managed to get them to apply to UT and come to UT. Um, so I don't want to be, I don't want to paint with an overly broad brush, but it is true that because of the efforts of affirmative action and DEI offices, but also as a result of attempts to get around the law by making admissions criteria fuzzy. We get a lot of students from all sorts of backgrounds and of all sorts of ethnicities who really aren't well prepared. And you're right that certain populations are on average less prepared than others. And it's very hard to fix that once people get to college, um, partly because 
The way people usually try to do it, if it's a good faith effort, is to have special tutoring programs or have special help. But that adds to people's workloads. They're having trouble handling the workload already. So giving them more things to do, at least in the short term, makes it harder. It doesn't help. So uh, it's very, very hard once people come to university. If they aren't already good readers, if they can't do math at a decent level and they're in engineering or business or physics or something, you've got a huge problem because it takes time and effort to catch up. Now, I think students in general can catch up if they're admitted. They've got the skills in general to be able to do it, but not at the same time they're actually managing this. Um, I think if we were all to be serious about it, we'd recognize that there's a huge problem that is coming out of K-12 and partly because of the inputs there, partly because of people having very difficult home backgrounds and other problems. And and we would recognize, look, you're not ready for university yet, but let's have something, I don't know what you would call this, but something that would really tell you what you should have learned in high school if you didn't. Right. And take that year to just do that and catch up and then enter the university. Trying to do the two things at once really doesn't work very well. For exceptionally talented students, it can. I don't want to say it's hopeless, but it's it's adding a burden to people who are already struggling to bear the burden they've got. And and so it's it's a problem. And it's not something that you can easily wave a wand about or tell people, hey, you belong. Well, nice to hear that, maybe. Though actually, I think most students react by thinking, it's weird to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I thought I belonged already because you admitted me. But um, even if it were effective at making people feel included, that's not necessarily helping them do the work they need to do. And now there's pressure on faculty members to get rid of exams, to dumb things down a bit, to make it easier to pass their courses. And I don't think that's a good idea at all. If anything, I think we should be striving to say, after the pandemic, let's go back to the standards we had that we did relax a little because in, in remote teaching, certain things are just difficult to do and mm-hmm. so on. Um, we need people to come up to a standard of excellence that we've always been dedicated to, not get rid of the standard of excellence because not enough people are meeting it from certain backgrounds. Yeah, It's a really odd odd uh, way of thinking. We've certainly been working here at TPPF for 30 years to try to close those achievement gaps with gender and, and race achievement gaps in K through 12 and and talk about a battle for social justice. You know, we, we've called that the civil rights issue of our times and, and uh, trying to push it forward. Are you uh, wrapping up here? Are you encouraged by the passage of Senate Bill 17, the DEI law at the University of Texas, or do you see that we'll go through a period of uh, blowback and retrenchment by social justice warriors? Uh, what, what do you, knowing what you've seen since 1980, what do you, what do you uh, predict? Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm very encouraged, actually. I think that this indicates, for the first time in a long time, really, that people on the outside of academia are actually watching and paying attention and no longer saying, look, um, academic freedom, you guys get to do whatever you want. Um, I think that was always a crazy thought, not that I welcome political interference. And I don't want to return to days when there was heavy political interference. But on the other hand, I also look and say, 
hey, this, the taxpayers of Texas are paying good money to send their kids to UT and to subsidize education at a place like UT and other state universities because they want certain things to happen. They want people to be educated. They want top-notch research. They want this to contribute in a positive way to the state and the economy of Texas. And, and I think they have a right to demand that. And if people aren't doing it, and in fact doing things that are destructive, they should step in and stop it in the same way that we should stop people. And this is, luckily, this is very rare, but it's happened, that faculty members collect salaries and simply never show up on campus and never do anything. <laughs> uh, it takes amazingly long to get rid of someone who simply isn't showing up but isn't doing anything. And, and people reasonably have an expectation that, hey, we subsidize this and we support it because it's achieving certain goals that we endorse. And if it's not doing that, we should push it back in the right direction so that it is. So I think it's immensely encouraging that that kind of oversight is taking place, that the public is watching and is trying to say, hey, we do care about excellence. We care about truth. We care about knowledge. We want people to be learning something of value. And we don't want you basically using your positions to just introduce social conflict, which is what a lot of this has been doing. So I think that's very encouraging. It's not as if it's going to be an easy struggle. And the people who are really dedicated to bringing about the kinds of social changes they want, they're going to keep at it. So I think we have to remain vigilant and say, all right, let's, let's see what happens. And don't assume the problem is solved. We can all go back to you know, the way we were doing things, and we'll check back in 50 years. <laughs> that's not how it's going to work. Uh, it needs to be continuing. This will, this is a hydra that once you lop off one head, it's going to pop up somewhere else, and you have to be vigilant for that. But it's, I'm much more encouraged than I was a few years ago when I thought nobody's paying any attention, nobody seems to care that uh, increasingly universities are dedicated to something that is not just different from their traditional mission, but hostile to it. And when people talk, as various university administrators do now about saying we have to redefine what excellence is in a university. I've I become alarmed. I think, no, I know what excellence is in a university. We've had more or less the same conception for over a millennia. <laughs> and, and when people suddenly say we're going to redefine it, that means, oh, you, you're not pursuing excellence the way we've understood it. You're doing something else. And that's a bad sign. So I think we have to say no. Uh, the discovery of truth, the communication of truth, passing it on to the next generation, that's what's really important here. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You, we want people excellent at that. And, uh, and I think that it's wonderful that for the first time in a long time, I've seen real attempts to rein things in and say, yes, that's the mission we want. Get back to your mission. Um, it, it may require additional interventions, so I'm not, I'm not saying we should all relax now, not by any means, but I think it's a huge push in the right direction. So when you testified, I'm thinking about all those professors that came across the street to testify that night and, and a couple of test, uh, couple of hearings on Senate Bill 17. Um, when you testified, did, you, did people come up and say, you know, 
what are you thinking? This is a terrible idea. Who are you? You're not one of us. I'm thinking about the woman who flew in from Connecticut from the uh, American Association of University Professors. And uh, so what kind of personal blowback did you get? Oh, um, not at all. Not oh, good. <laughs> Great. Tolerance for, tolerance for ideas. We yes. don't need to embrace other people's ideas. We just need to tolerate them. Uh, right. I, now, to some extent, I'm a known quantity. I've been <laughs> loudmouthed about my views <laughs> uh, ever since before I had tenure. Uh, so I've been sort of known for being a campus conservative even back in the early 80s. Uh -huh. So I've been saying this kind of stuff for 40 years, and nobody's surprised. Um, you should start an affinity group. I, <laughs> well, you know, we did have a very active uh, branch of the National Association of Scholars on campus for a uh -huh. time. Um, and then some of the leaders of that either retired or became ill, and uh, it, it's been more or less dormant since then. Um, there are actually a lot of people on college campuses who do not go along with the orthodoxy that you hear most loudly. And in fact, even most people who would consider themselves politically on the left really do not subscribe to the things that are the most outrageous manifest manifestations. In fact, what they say behind closed doors about it is much more in keeping with what I think of it. Uh -huh. um, but they won't say anything publicly. It's only a few of us who do. And um, this became clear a few years ago when people were soliciting writers and scholars who would um, sign a statement in support of Donald Trump's candidacy back in 2016. Um, very few people were willing to do that, even though, uh, in fact, in philosophy, only four people nationally were willing to do it, two of them at UT. Um, but most people would say, look, even if they were, I'm on your side, but I can't, this will destroy my career if I say this. Um, and I guess I've been saying it for so long, I, it's all factored in. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> and I'm not worried about my career at this point. But um, I think a lot of younger people feel like, yeah, even if I think this is all crazy, I can't say that. I've got to pretend to go along, um, at least until I have tenure, or at least I, until I become full professor, or whatever their career goal is. So, and, and among, the, the, I think the most surprising thing is that the people who are more or less traditional liberals, and it might be a majority of university faculties, really, they're... Democrats in the traditional Kennedy-Johnson type mold, um, they for the most part don't go along with this stuff either. And they don't reflect it in the way they teach their classes, but they'll never say a word against it. And they will support hiring such people and so forth. And, and so over the time I've been there, that's if there's one thing that's been the most frustrating, it's that. The people who realize this is nonsense and it's hostile to the mission of the university and do oppose it personally, won't act on that. They, they let it happen. Well, I'm so glad you came to talk to us about this. That seems like a philosophical, ethical question. <laughs> it is. It really is. But, but thank you so much for joining us today on the Ninth and Congress podcast. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive the Ninth in Congress newsletter with my commentary on Texas and America, you can find it on the TPPS website, www.texaspolicy.com. Mm -hmm.